right. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of The Driven Few with Al Hamid, where we align with those driven individuals to really get under the hood to learn as to how they get it all done with family and business. I'm your host, Al Hamid, and I am blessed to work with those high-performing leaders, coaching them how to dive in and get it all done, selling as leaders in business, in their family, and in their faith. Today is a special show of my good friends, a business ninja. We'll kind of get right into it. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Social Dynamic Selling System, along with eight other eight other businesses, each of them surpassing the seven-figure level. Most recently, Scott has has come into a pivotal role in my life, both with my work with King's Council as Scott, both on the leadership team, a coach and mentor within King's Council, outside of his own coaching clientele as well. Husband of the beautiful Susan, father to beautiful Hannah, Mr. Scott Thomas. Welcome, brother. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, man. I'm excited. This is cool. I'm glad you got this rolling. Yeah, dude. It's been a long time coming, man. It's been fun. I know you, you've certainly been helping behind the scenes with a lot of stuff. So honor and respect to you, brother, for just being you, man, showing up and being able to drop your wisdom. Let's get into it, man. I think first things first, we'll just kind of dive in organically about you, man. Tell us a little sure. bit about you, your story, your come up, kind of how Scott Thomas came to fruition. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I was born, no, I'll, I won't we'll go too far back. No. <laughs> so <laughs> actually, I was born in uh, upstate New York in a really small town, like near Rushford, kind of Buffalo area. No one knows Rushford, but Buffalo, Rochester area, I guess, in a little town near Rushford. My parents were kind of not Ozzy and Harriet, you know, the, it wasn't that mm. Saturday morning post, but Norman Rockwell kind of family. So both of my grandparents married 58 years. Both of my parents married 55 years. Literally everyone in my family tree, Christian, goes to church. I have an uncle who's a pastor and another one who's involved deep in the church. So it's kind of a normal Christian upbringing, normal to me, I guess. Literally at church every Wednesday, every Sunday, Sunday night, youth groups at our house. Pretty much that was the bulk of our life as we were kind of growing up. We moved to Florida just before I turned five. So we lived in Clearwater, Florida, which is right near Tampa. And so I've been here my whole life. But that same upbringing and that's kind of, I guess, the, the undertone of my life has always been that. Because having four siblings, I have an older sister, an older brother, myself, third child, which you'll probably discover here shortly. <laughs> and then my younger sister, the baby, as you guys know, having four kids and going to church and, you know, even in our neighborhood, growing up, one of the things is on Sunday, we weren't allowed to play with friends. We had to either go to church, spend time with people and friends from church. Or if we did come home, we'd eat lunch together and we'd have to spend family time with brothers and sisters. We couldn't even go out um, into the neighborhood and stuff. So we literally were, were focused on family on Sundays. That was our deal. So growing up with four in your family, lots of things happen. There's dynamics of different personalities. And I'm not sure my parents could have done a better job at having four completely different personalities in the house. So whatever you may already know about a Scorpio or a type A or a third child or insert whatever here, you can see me coming from a mile away usually, right? So I learned really young that I had to work differently with like my older sister when she was babysitting us versus when mom was home. And if it was mm. just mom, I would maybe operate slightly different than if dad was home. So I noticed that if you just kind of vary your communication a little bit, they respond differently. So I kind of became, you know, as parents, 
you probably would call that manipulative. As I grow older, I just I just call it marketing. But what happens is, right. depending on your audience, right, you may have to tweak the message or ask a different way. If I wanted my sister who was babysitting to let us do something kind of further than the boundaries that we thought, I'd ask a certain way. But if I was asking mom, I would ask her a different way. So that's something I truly remember as a kid, like paying attention to that. But I didn't know how it was going to play out later in my life. So as I went through, you know, middle school and high school and had lots of friends and did different things, I started to notice that different groups acted different ways. You know, like in school cliques, you know, you had the athletes here and the people here, whatever. So it was a little bit different because for me, I actually had a big chunk of friends from my church. We were at a pretty decent sized church. So in my school, there was a good chunk of them. However, in middle school, everyone around us went to a certain middle school and I went to a different one. So I had a hard time reading when I was in elementary school. I had attention issues. I just was not a studious kid. So my guidance counselor said, why don't you send them to this other middle school? They have stuff like metal shop and engine mechanics and bricklaying and all this other stuff, like this vocational kind of middle school. And it worked out, but I got introduced to a whole different group of people because on my area in the neighborhood, there was white people, black people, Spanish people, Latin people. There, there was a little bit of everything. But when I went to that school, I was kind of one of five or six white people at that school. So I got introduced to a different culture, a different group of people. So I learned how to operate there. Well, then when I get to high school, some from there, some from my church, and some from my neighborhood showed up. Well, they didn't necessarily know each other, but I had to operate in between the groups sometimes. So I did catch myself. Not It's not necessarily like what people would call two-faced one way or another, but it's like I know what they... Sure. are accustomed to what they like and, and what, how, what they accept. And then others are like, they might be a little looser or not, you know? So just kind of watching how groups work. I always have been a, a people watcher, but more so like, wow, I tried something and it didn't work. And then I tried something else and it worked. I'm going to repeat that. So just that natural communication thing has always been intriguing to me. So flash forward into high school, what I noticed is, as a little kid kind of coming up, the other thing that most people don't know is I've had glasses since I was four. So elementary school is not good to kids with glasses. The other, the other kids, the teachers are fine, but the other kids are like, listen, I want to play dodgeball as bad as anybody else, but no one's picking the chubby kid with the glasses necessarily to be first team, right? So I caught myself noticing that to be picked for a team, I always was either last or further down the line. And that was frustrating to me because I thought I was just as good and I had just as much fun. Flash into high school, I was like, I don't really want to do team sports because the whole team concept was, I, I, it was, it was a friction point to me early on. But also, I never really liked, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was either a football team or a football game or something where 15 people never played one game the whole season and they all got trophies. Like, why did they get trophies? I get it. There's a team and I get all that, but it just didn't sit well with me. I think if I do the work, I should get the prize. And if I fail, then I work it out. So I became a wrestler. <laughs> so one of the things I liked about wrestling as an individual sport is if I win, it's my prize. That's it. And if I, if I lose, 
I shake hands and then today you were the better man. But it, it also taught me the power of paying attention to your practice because it's you. You can't just like hide on the left side when you got a really great receiver on the right and go, yay, yay, we are a winning team. I feel like you take complete ownership in your actions and more so your practice. Mm, it's good. Not being little either. So in high school, I wrestled 189. So for in high school, that's a pretty decent size. So two yeah. things happened. I was heavy, not built. And there was guys who were pretty built. So I ended up have to, having to wrestle guys with much bigger muscles than me. So it challenged me differently. Or I would get the guy who's 6'6", which if you know about wrestling, leverage is a big deal. So, you know, you can't roll them over if he just puts his leg out to the side, a guy who's that much taller. So there were different kinds of challenges. And really in wrestling, it's so strategic with its rules. And the smarter guy usually wins, not just the stronger guy. So start to put all these together and you can see how it's formed me into a communication response expert, paying attention to how people respond and how people communicate, but then also understanding where you fit. Because there's times where, you know, just even as a wrestler, I had to fit, okay, this guy's much heavier than me, but I'm probably just as strong. And then I got another guy who's not as strong as me, but he's really tall. I have to change my game plan depending on what's going forward. So, of course, at the time, I didn't realize that this was going to be an actually pretty solid foundation for entrepreneurship later. But looking back, I really can peel back the onion of some of those experiences that have taught me how to, you know, shuck and jive, I guess, with with hitting curveballs and as stuff comes at you knowing how to assess the situation quick, change your communication and get back into that. So those little things, I feel like it's kind of the the foundation of paying attention and watching people and then knowing how to shift gears in any given situation. So it's kind of giving me some good practice. But there's been a couple other things that were sort of integral to me because I was always kind of the dreamer, right? I was always the one day I'm going to this and one day I'm going to that. As you know, if you have four kids and and those who have multiple kids know that when you start dividing out parents' paychecks and watching how money goes, neither of my parents ever made more than $40,000 a year ever. So at some point, you got to get pretty good at dividing the money, making it last, making sure you're getting enough for six, a family of six, you know, whether that's vehicles, food, vacations, time, whatever those things are, you've got to learn how to cut up a pie nicely. So I was always like, get the biggest pie you can get then. Like, let's, let's just make everything bigger. Right. So one of the things that I always heard growing up that I didn't understand as a kid now, it's much more clear to me is I would hear my mom say stuff like, you know, we're not Cadillac people. And I, I know I've said this a lot and I've been on other shows and other times I've said it. And my mom has since said, why do you keep bringing that up? I go, because it's actually so important to me. And it's not that she did something wrong because it creates kind of a self-limiting belief if you think of it that way. But what she did is she understood their position for the time and she used that to hold her in the position at that time. Let me tell you the whole story because I felt like she's holding me back. I want to be Ferrari people. I want to be Rolls Royce people. And she's like, we're not even Cadillac people. But let me give you the whole story so you know. My mom's dad in this very little town my grandfather, was the mayor, he was the president of the bank, and owned the insurance company. He was the guy, right? 
So now picture this scenario. You have a bad summer, you have a bad crop, and one of the farmers calls and says, I need a loan. I need to borrow money or I'm not going to make it. Would it make sense for him to drive over to their property in a fancy, shiny, big Cadillac and kind of right. poke him in the eye? You know what I mean? So now what right. I understand is that my grandfather knew to use some discernment and be careful about the people that you serve because it could rub them wrong. Not that he wasn't Cadillac people. For their day, they had you know multiple color TVs in their house, which was crazy rich. You know, no? But in that small town, if you think about it, can you see how generation, if my grandmother kept repeating that to my mom and my mom kept repeating that to sure. us kids, and if us kids just said, yep, oh, well, we're not Cadillac people. Well, do you understand how that becomes a self-limiting belief to a child that says, I'm not good enough. Forget exotic cars. I'm not even good enough for the Cadillac, right? Right. So what I learned, though, because I resisted it so much, I almost used it to say, you're right. I would never settle for a Cadillac. I want this. <laughs> you know what I mean? I took it as a, right. as a springboard. I would settle for a Cadillac. I'm going to go ahead and get that Rolls Royce. Right. Who would buy a Cadillac if you could have something, right? So, but I think what I've learned, obviously, as you're an adult, you ask more questions, you find out more. And later, she's like, no, I wasn't slowing you down. I was just telling you, be humble if you're going to be serving other people, not to shove it in their face. Like, okay, now I get it. But obviously, telling that to a 10 and 12 and 14-year-old who doesn't process information that way necessarily younger, you should take the time to explain why you're saying it. Because sometimes that's how self-limiting beliefs get ingrained into kids' heads, and they grow up thinking they're not good enough, and they have it totally out of context. Absolutely. So lucky for me, I didn't pay attention to that, and I used it as a springboard, but I could see how others could. And now being so present to helping people get rid of self-limiting beliefs, I kind of want to share that one because it's a good one to explain. For them, at that time where they were, that was great advice. For you, in mm. this time where you are, it has nothing to do with you. That mm. was a, a kind of a big one growing up. That's good, Scott. I appreciate that share, man. It's not every day you get to walk someone's childhood with them. So that, that's cool, man. I have a lot of similarities in that. I shouldn't say a lot. So, you know, my dad, growing up, growing the business, we we certainly weren't poor, but I very much knew what layaway was. And, you know, that's oh, kind of yeah. how I learned from an ROI mind. All right, if I have $30 to spend on X amount of shirts, I can get this shirt. This one's on sale and, and move it here. But yep. I say that to say one of the things that that has always stood out about me, about you, man, and as I've been opportunity to get to know you as a friend now on a coaching level, so you just serve, man, and pour into to other guys to be able to take where they're at and afford them the ability to, to scale it and leverage using your your experience. And one of the things that is, and you just showcased it there, man, is your your situational awareness, your ability to take pieces and look back at hindsight, even man, probably 40, 45 years ago in your life and all throughout now to be able to say, all right, this didn't happen to me. This happened for me. And here's the aha moment behind it. And if I can take this silver lining or strategy out of that, couple it with this, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. And now not only do I not have these self-limiting BS belief systems, but I actually have a belief system that I'm actually well-positioned because of this. And I think that has, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that has been at least one variable of your many that has led to, you mentioned entrepreneurship, you know, and your ability 
to be a leader in that realm. I mean, obviously, you know, running seven, eight multi-million dollar businesses is, is, is to do that. But I say that to say one question I would have as an entrepreneur, multi-business owner myself, one of the things candidly, Scott, that, that I've seen you excel in is your ability to take your situational awareness, your entrepreneurship, the prowess associated with that and convert that into the power and leverage behind partnerships, which is something that for me, candidly, I've not been able to capitalize on yet because I've always had the belief system, speaking to self-limiting belief systems that someone isn't going to work as hard as I am. You know, if I'm up at four o'clock in the morning and they're up at six, that's not going to roll for me. You know, and you mentioned one time I heard in a conversation about your ability in partnerships to maintain a conscientious sense of nervousness. Yep. Kind of want to talk about that and, and share a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think, again, think about those beliefs. Have you ever heard somebody say, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Right. Right. But if you want something done a million times, you can't. If you want something done 50 times today, you can't. And if you want scale and grow and volume, listen, if you, you've heard all the silly cliches and they're only still around because they're still true. If you want to go fast, go by yourself. But if you want to go far, you have to go with others. You just can't right. do it all yourself. It's actually a ridiculous thing to say once you're on the other side to say, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Who are you so pompous to think you can do everything that needs to be done right or best? Your, your, your only scale is your opinion. Well, my opinion is always right because mm. it's my opinion, right? So if you look at the actual success of the task, of course, there's hundreds of people who can do it just as good or better. And why wouldn't you lean on some of those? So that is a breakthrough kind of thinking that we try to help people with because you just can't do it all yourself. So to get back to your point, partnerships early on, I did think I really want it all for me. I want to be the owner. I want everyone to know it's my stuff, you know, and having a partner weakens that or whatever version of words you would want to use. Sure. Like I got to depend on somebody who's not as tough as me or strong as me or work ethic as me. Like you said, I get up earlier than them. What are they doing? They're lazy, mm. right? So that kind of churn is destructive to both of you either way. So what I look at it like, and I don't even remember where I heard it was years and years and years ago. It's like our relationship. Now, you and my relationship is not 50-50. It is 100-0. It's 100 on me and a zero on you. And your relationship to me is 100 on you and zero on me. And as long as we look at it that way, I leave no room for something to go wrong for me to blame you. Mm. You don't own the other 50. It's all mine. And if I didn't communicate what I needed or expected or was hoping to get clear enough so that you could help me get it or you couldn't do it. It's your job to communicate back to me that I can't get it done. So it's a hundred zero and a zero a hundred. If you always look at stuff like that, you will always have that feeling. Like I constantly feeling, you know, I, I have a bunch of businesses with Riley and I have a feeling every day that I want him to go to sleep every night saying, man, I am so glad you're here. Like, I am so glad you're my partner. I'm so glad that the things that happened today, that I had someone in my camp and that someone is you. I want that answer to always be me. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you did it. That doesn't mean overdue. It doesn't mean coddle. It doesn't mean, you know, say yes to everything. It means be the partner that you need 
and always own your side. And I look at my side as all of it. It's good, man. I never, I, I, I try not to sit. I can't say never. I try my best to consciously stay nervous that I might've missed something. So that makes me go check that I didn't miss something. You know what I mean? Absolutely, man. And I know what it feels like some days is like paranoid, but I also think there's something that I call it, it's intentional pressure. I want to keep an intentional pressure on myself because I know how, think of how many marriages, how many partners, how many businesses that they just look up one day and go, man, if we weren't married, I wouldn't even be friends with you. Sure. You know, and it's because they weren't intentional all the time to make sure that the other person felt like, I'm so glad you're my partner. That's good, man. And I think when you can do that, not only do you inspire the other person to do that to you back, even if that wasn't their mode, you inspire them to be that for you. Think of what two equally yoked people can do when you start pulling in the same direction. It goes crazy. It goes so, so fast. He surely could have run a bunch of businesses on his own, made a bunch of money just fine. Me too. But man, when we came together, everything went up. So it, it was almost exponential growth because we lean on each other's strengths. We admit our weaknesses and we go right at it and they go, let's attack. And one of the things that we do a lot is we always look for the opportunity in the risk, not look for the risk in the opportunity. Mm, very good. When something comes up, we assume it has risk. We assume it has issues. We assume it has some stuff, but what is the upside? And are we willing to accept that risk to get that upside? And we both keep looking the same way. So that's kind of one of those mm. One of those kind of beliefs that when you lean on each other, I know that right now he's somewhere else in this country. We don't even live near each other. He lives in Minnesota. I live in Tampa. Right. And we're, we're solid partners in our businesses because our vision is the same. We answer questions the same way. We have the same, what I call filter. When an opportunity shows up, I shake it through the filter. This how it works? Is this what it's going to do for us? Is this how we can capitalize on it? And can we grow it? And can we do something else with it later if we want to? Yes, let's do it. Sure. So our vision is aligned. Our, our alignments are the same. And so I trust right now he's somewhere else working on something else. And I know if something pops up, he's going to go, man, we should do that. Mm. Not I should do that. So that's where you can lean on partnerships, but you have to cultivate them. Their work, just like a marriage. You don't get married and you're done. You have the ceremony and you get to work. <laughs> so, right. you know, it, it's work to be partners. It's work to be a good friend and it's work to be a good employee. It's work to be a good boss. It's good, Just pick man. your work. It's tactical, practical, man. One of the things that you didn't necessarily say this, but what I heard you say both on from your perspective and what you're describing about Riley is just, is a growth mindset. You know, neither one of you are negotiating from a position of weakness or a scarcity mindset where you understand that, Hey, we can go farther. If we do this together, you very much analyze and understand each other's skill sets, your, your areas of opportunities for growth or weakness. I know that you've You've done a SWOT analysis for every single opportunity that comes knocking at your door, man. And the other thing that I heard you say is you specifically, Scott, is a very strong sense of ownership. You know, when you yeah. do that, I guess that maybe that can be attributed back to your dodgeball career or wrestling to where you put yeah. yourself in a position where you understood, hey, if I want to win, it's on me. If I want to lose, it, it's on me. If I want to be out in this team or actually be able to play on this field, I've got to put myself in a position to be out there. And I think to your point, a lot of times in a relationship, marriage, a lot of people aren't intentional or if they are, they're actually intentional yeah. about not doing anything. And then they have this fickle, yeah. grandiose expectation that because we've 
reach this threshold and then cross this line of, of marriage or we're now partners. We both work our butts off to be able to get to this point. Well, now we can downshift and just the expectation is there. And I'm actually hearing the exact opposite out of you to where not only do you not downshift, you're not even in neutral. You're constantly surveying the scene to be able to say, no. all right, what is it that I can do with my value add to continuously sharpen myself personally so I can relieve any yeah. pressure? Man, that's, that's ninja, dude. That's awesome. Yeah. If I'm the same guy I was a year ago, next year, I will become useless within a few. That's I, I have to look at it that way. If you're not, con- my motto is grow always in all ways. Mm. So in every way you can grow physically i try to get better mentally i try to get better emotionally relationships spiritually financially everything actually i've added a couple for myself stability longevity i think about how do i get better for stability how do i get better for longevity how can i open a business knowing that if i want to sell it it has to be a business not a job Mm. i've got to look so far out ahead and and honestly riley and i we're different ages too. So I'm 13 years older than him. Right. But that doesn't mean we're in different spots. I just might have started later. But mm. I will say, if you think about that ownership, one of the things I want people to know is if you've never been in the center of a mat in a big gymnasium with everyone watching and there's only one light right in the center ring, there's two people. One of them will lose. Sure. And you don't want it to be you. And I can tell you, it's not what you do on the mat that day that matters. It's all the stuff you did in the gym leading up to it that nobody saw. Mm -hmm. And when you can really get your arms around, you know, the show may go on when the show goes on, but by then you missed it. If you ain't ready, Mm. like you're not ready. Good man. Yeah. Hannah plays violin. So my daughter plays Philharmonic violin very, very well. And she would get nervous before concerts and stuff. And I would always tell her your volume of practice is directly correlated to your anxiety. If you practice this much, you will have this much anxiety. If you practice a lot, your anxiety will go down. Because the more times you've done it, even if you stumbled, eventually you've done it right. And through practice, you've done it a couple times right. And then if you do it a couple times right, you can do it more times right. And if you keep going, not just once I can play it. I played it once. Cool. Now I can go out and play it outside or do something else. Once you perfect practice is what makes perfect. So mm. get your practice up to the level it's perfect and then practice it perfect. Absolutely. Then it's just another day. So it's the same for us too. Whether you're wrestling or you're going into a negotiation or into a sale or you're looking at a business opportunity, I practice. I literally sometimes sit in the mirror and I'll negotiate with myself thinking what the other person might say. Sure. I practice. I actually practice negotiating. I practice communicating. I practice those things. My wife makes fun of me sometimes because she'll see me mowing and talking out loud. But that's the stuff that you do because I want those reps in. So the day the game shows up, I'm ready. And I've already been through this conversation a couple of times. I actually predicted you might have said that and I was already ready with you for you. So so what appears on game day or, or during that negotiation as quick wit or something quick, you don't realize I put a ton of reps in. Sure. So now what I'm trying to do, instead of just look like I'm super creative, I want people to really know I struggle. And part of the thing that drives me is I have this fear that people will think I'm dumb. So at a certain point in time, if something comes up in a conversation that I feel like I may look dumb, I prepare. So what does it do? By forcing me to prepare because I'm afraid of being dumb, I've prepared and I've become smart. And now when I get there, I'm actually smart. So I use one of my weaknesses. I use one of my beliefs as 
the power, or as Billy Ellsbrooks would say, is lighter fluid. Right. I take that thing that could be perceived as weak as I'm scared people are going to think I'm dumb. So what I do is I study and I prepare and I look and I dig and I research. Like, okay, now I found an answer that I can feel good about. Now I feel good about it, which is the same as being smart. Man, that is real talk. Honor and respect to you for, for sharing that. This is exactly why I want to have a podcast, not to be able to have a podcast, not to be able to say, Hey, this is, this is cool. No, none of that is to be able to, to get to the real, the raw, the organic of, Hey, listen, these are my fears. This is what I am uncomfortable with. The guy is sitting here pouring his heart out saying, listen, I've made multi, multi, multi million dollars. I know where you're at. I know the vehicles that you drive, but yet I still have this imposter syndrome fear that someone is going to think I'm not good enough or I'm not as smart as I portray. And it's because of that, it drives me to be able to show up well-prepared. And when you say witty comments and well-prepared dude, like that's like one of the things that you're known for. I don't know that our listeners know that. I know that the folks in the King's council, but very few times do I hear someone ask Scott Thomas a question and not have like just a smooth ass one liner. That's just like, yeah, wow. You could tell he's walked that path before. And it's because you're, you're well-prepared. You've got a lot of experience and, and, and and I don't certainly don't want to marginalize that as well, man. But yeah, dude, that was a solid share, man. Honor and respect to you for that. Yeah. It's funny because this came up the other day as talking about that. Somebody said, how is it that you can take something that seems so complex and make it so small? And I'm like, do you want to know the real answer? I had ADD when I was younger and I couldn't take notes fast. So I would listen and try to get the concept and come up with an analogy like, okay, when you're marketing, you're trying to reach a certain people, you got to know what they want. I'm like, okay, so that's like fishing, find the fish and feed them Mm, what they eat. And that's the note I would write because I was afraid I wouldn't get the whole concept down because I couldn't write fast enough and I couldn't pay attention to listening and writing at the same time. So again, understand sometimes you can take your weaknesses and turn them into some of your greatest strengths if you just continue to work at them and try. If I have a, a, a short attention span, I don't need to flex muscles till I have a long attention span. I just have to use my tools Good. and resources to adjust to my short attention span. So my dad used to always have this funny joke. And as I get older, it's kind of funny that it applies to me more. He's like, if you can't pay attention, take notes. If you can't take notes, get a secretary. If you can't afford a secretary, pay attention, (laughs) right? But think about that. Use your resources to help overcome what may be or you're perceiving as a limit. And what you'll find is my fear of sounding dumb is forcing me to educate myself. And my inability to pay attention for a long time helps me simplify complex things so that I can remember them. And now in my season of sharing, as I get older and teaching and I'm gathering all this information that I've learned and now I want to just pour it into everyone else, I found because I can simplify it, it's so much more deliverable. It's in a consumable chunk instead of some big math, you know, you have to have a program or Excel spreadsheet just to figure this whole thing out. I can get most people's business plan onto an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and just keep it simple. And then by being able to do that, it makes things that are complex so much more simple. But that comes from something that was a flaw in some people's mind of mine. Man. And that's what I use. That's quite the adjustment, man. Not an excuse. And we all know what champions do, man. They make those adjustments, not those excuses. 
Last question, man. Last thing that I want to dive into. I actually have a list of probably 17 more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. Man, one of the things that you are ultra ninja level at, as I always say, and one of the things that I know that kind of fuels you as we speak to your motivating factors as components of your success is really the ability to have options and specific to your ability to have options in your life, man. And as I talk about living in the and all the time, you know, when I say living in the and is being able to run and lead your businesses to the extent that you want and your household as a man of God and your household as a husband, as a father, things of that nature. So you want to share a little bit about your perspective on those options and living in the world of and with options, brother? Yeah. So one of the things, obviously, growing up in a Christian household, you may have heard, there's this kind of undertone of some churches, not all, but there's, there's always been that misconception of stay humble versus make a lot of money. Like they're opposite. You can have a lot of money and be humble. You can be poor and be humble, right? You can have no money and be a complete jerk and you could be millionaire and be a complete jerk. They have nothing to do with each other. But I think there's been this twisted love of money is the root of all evil where it's just been truncated to money is the root of all evil. It's just, it's just not the case. The reality is, first of all, the Bible says abundance in it all over the place. And that's exactly what he wants from us. But part of money to me isn't dollars. It isn't the dollar. It's what the dollars can do. So if I'm going through life and I have just enough for me, which realistically in the, in the, in the biblical sense is extremely selfish. If all you make is just enough for you to cover your bills and you, you, you can't be a help to anybody else. If you only make just enough, if you only have just enough food for you, how do you share with someone who's hungry? If your house only has enough rooms for you and the people in it, how do you open your doors to someone who needs shelter? Like if you don't have enough, you have to have extra. You really do. But what extra gives you is options. When Hannah was 15, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And right then we could pivot and get her whatever care she needed from the best happened to be local, which was really, really good for us. But if she would have had to fly to Germany, we would have fly to Germany. If she had to be somewhere else for a year, we would have been somewhere else for a year. But that's the options that money gives you when you have extra. The good news is when I don't necessarily need it and somebody I love or somebody I'm close to needs it, I have the option to provide that option to someone else. So it's really never been about the money. Money is the easiest thing to measure because it's a number. And you can see that this number is bigger than this number and it's easy to kind of tell. But as you grow your personal wealth, your business wealth, and just make everything bigger and bigger and bigger, what you'll find is your ability to have options for yourself, your family, your loved ones, and your community, they go up. If there's a Christian school here local, my sister's a teacher at a Christian school. If they start to struggle because of COVID shut things down and they needed some help or whatever, I would have no problem helping somehow help keep them afloat until they got back on their feet or get something because I have that option. I have the ability to help because I've created a scenario where I have extra. And that's the whole point of being an entrepreneur, owning a business. The business leaders in most areas and towns are the ones who are kind of leading the areas and towns anyway. So it's our job. It's incumbent on us to be the right kind of person first and then go get money. Be a good person first. Care about other people. Care about your family. Care about your health. Do all those things first. And then when you go get a lot of money, you'll do good with it because money just magnifies who you already are. So you got to become a good person first and then go get a lot of money. 
But if you're halfway there or you're already a, a good person, let's go make a lot of money. Let's go get you more options because it's the options that you want. I don't want to be told this is the only hospital you can go to or this is the only food you get to eat. I never want to be told that. Super good, man. I have a similar story to what your mom shared regarding the Cadillac comment. So I say this in context. My dad always growing up would always tell me, hey, you can't help the less fortunate by becoming one of them. You know, and when you say that out loud, it sounds kind of pompous and arrogant. But in the reality of the situation is, is if you have a heart to serve and to sow into other people, whether you know them or not, you have to be able to put yourself in a position. And that goes back to the threshold that we have. You know, a lot of people are free to help to the extent that they can. But when it encroaches on where they feel comfortable, yep. that runs dry, you know? So, and, and there's, that's for everyone. I, I'm, and that's presumptuous of me to say, but I say that to say, by putting yourself in a position by the grace of God and the sweat of your brow to raise that threshold, to give you more options, to be able to not only help yourself, but those that are less fortunate, like you, you shared with Hannah or something that comes up, that's just not a situation where you necessarily want to be in. You have an opportunity to do that, man. And I love the way that, that you portray that man, the way that you articulate that lines very, very well with my mindset, man. So man, brother, always a pleasure, dude. Anything else on your mind or on your heart that you kind of want to share? It's funny, as you were just saying that, I, I just literally came up with another one. Like, I would absolutely give you the shirt off my back, but I'd rather you come over and pick one of the colors <laughs> that you like out of my closet. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would. I will give you my last one, but why should I need a last one? Why can't I just give you a couple of them? Why, if I have extra, you know what I mean? Like, you should, you should live in abundance and think in abundance so that when those things come up, you don't hesitate. You don't have this moral argument with yourself with should I give or is it my last one? What about me? That's the selfish part. If you just live in your capped, you know, I just got to make it to my next paycheck life. That, that actually is really selfish. You have to figure out a way to break out of it so that you can be useful to somebody else. So, but it's funny, as you were saying that I literally pictured you pointing to your shirt. And I said, yeah, I'd give him a shirt off my back, but why? I, I have so many others. I'll give you some of those. So I'm talking about with the wit right? and the one-liners, dude. Yeah. This is exactly what I was talking about, man. 100%. <laughs> That's hey, awesome. I love you, man. Yeah, man. I love you, dude. I love talking to you. If I'm a listener, in some cases, I'm watching this, they got a much value out of chatting with Scott Thomas as I did, man. And I absolutely unequivocally want to get a hold of you, figure out some coaching opportunities, figure out how I can connect with you. How do I do that? You can surely go to our website, socialdynamicselling.com. And there's a section in there where you can like book one-on-ones with me, with Riley. You can you can book like a, a consultation, kind of a free time. But we also have where you can kind of buy hours from us if it's something that you want coaching or anything like that. I don't necessarily need that. Most of the time we do like a free consultation. And a lot of times in that conversation, I'll just kind of turn and point you in the right direction and you don't even need us. And just a little bit of free advice sometimes goes a long way with some people. You surely could follow, you know, obviously King's Council Coaching or the Scott Thomas, T-H-E-E, Scott Thomas on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. I'm, I'm kind of everywhere. So if you want to put links, if you have those, you can surely do that too. We'll make sure they're in the show notes as well, brother. Awesome. Awesome, big dog, man. Well, I appreciate you. We're going to go ahead and cut this one off. This will be one of many, I'm sure. Until next yeah. time, fam. See you guys. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Driven View with Al Hamid. If you love what you heard, and I know that you did, please follow us on Apple and Spotify and leave us that 10-star review. 
All right, if you can't find 10, we will gladly accept that five-star review. You can also connect with me, Al Hamid, on both Instagram and Facebook. Al Hamid, H-A, M is in Mary, E is in Edward, D is in Diesel. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and like.